Uh, my name's Kyle Reschke, and I have a, a bit of a special element in our service today, but also some announcements uh, for you. I'm one of the pastors of our church. Uh, specifically, I serve leading all of our missions and outreach across all of our campuses. Uh, so I'm really excited to be here to uh, let you know and make sure you are invited to a really special couple of weeks in the life of our church family. And so two weeks from today, our church celebrates Missions Fest. Now, you may or may not know our church family has nearly a century of history of sending missionaries all around the world. And so Missions Fest is, is two weeks where we really celebrate, hear, bring in global leaders, hear from our partners and all of our groups and services. This theme, the light of the world, comes in the recognition that the God we're worshiping here every week in our groups and our lives as he sends us. Uh, even when things seem dark, God shows up always as the light of the world. And he does so, so often chooses to do so through his people, right? Through his church. So that's what we're celebrating at Missions Fest. So I want you to tune in, uh, certainly online, here in person for these really special uh, services. And we do this year to to kind of encourage our, our whole church family to show up as the light of the world, we do have a special giving project that I want to make sure you know you are invited to as well. So for our long-term partners around the world and here in our local community, we know there are areas that are particularly hard hit. Families in crisis in our local community, uh, hot spots in North Africa and the Middle East, in Latin and South America, in South Asia and East Africa, and so we have this special giving project and are praying that a thousand people in our church family show up, that 500 people would show up uh, to raise $40,000 to be sent out entirely to these long-term trusted partners on the ground in those hot spots. And that 500 households would show up with baby supplies, food staples to restock our long-term pantries and partners of our campuses. So church, you're invited to that. Would you just pray in these coming weeks about how God would have you specifically take part in that opportunity? And then also this morning, I just want to remind you, um, it, it, it has blown my mind. I've absolutely been in awe at the generosity of our church family. Because God is showing up as the light of the world. And in 2020, we have not needed to reduce support, cut missionaries. God has Wheaton Bible Church missionaries in 52 nations of the world who have been supported and are already on the ground when this really tough year has occurred. They are there to offer grace, support, care, not only to local believers, but their, to their communities uh, surrounding them. And so your regular tithes and offerings are what allows that to happen month after month and year after year. And I just want to praise God. And, and can we just praise God together for that? Yeah. Um, so just again, pray. What, how would God have you show up in this season, either through a regular uh, missions fest giving project? And this morning, I wanted you to hear from a really good friend of mine. We have a special segment of our service um, because a, a country that has been all over our news feeds is Lebanon. And it seems like could anything more happen to this country that has already been in so much crisis? And the answer was apparently this summer, yes, there could be more. But God is showing up again through his people in the light of the world. So I want to invite up Dr. Sam Naman 
And, and Sam is a great friend of ours, a global leader, uh, connected all over the world, but most specifically knows our partners and is a leader with our partners on the ground. From him, can we welcome him together this morning? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. So, Sam, um, could you just share a little bit about our long-term partnership in Lebanon? Over the last 15 years, uh, Wheaton Bible Church and TBC, uh, we have been uh, laboring together in the country of Lebanon, uh, serving through the nationals. Especially, we started in the Bekaa Valley, which is the hotbed of Hezbollah. If you, if you know Hezbollah or have heard about it. But we have been supporting our national partners there, as well as in Beirut uh, with Life Agape. So we have been on the ground for the last 15 years, and WBC has been very faithful. And I will, it is safe to say that hundreds have responded from the Muslim background in both of these places. Yeah. 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 Um, and Sam, before we get to the recent explosion in Beirut, could you just talk about... Um, a bit of what's been going on through the last decade in Lebanon, well, too. Well, you know, our, our initial response was to respond to this crisis that developed, uh, the refugee crisis. And uh, we started supporting our, our, our workers there through church planting, through, through people who were starting fellowships, sharing the gospel. But we, we, we were also focused on people with special abilities being disabled people. In the Bekaa Valley, our, our workers are ministering to women and children who are disabled, who basically are not cared for. And then, of course, this crisis started, and we again praise and thank God that we didn't need permits or passports or visas to be there. I mean, our workers were there in two hours, or even before that, when this explosion happened, Yeah, by God's grace. Yeah, and so this nation of only a few million people had an influx of about two and a half million, million refugees. People. Yes. So Lebanon is a very small nation. It's a beautiful nation. I've been there multiple times. And prior to the explosion, it was, Beirut was beautiful. But then all of a sudden, this imagine 2.5 million people come and they keep coming. So the beautiful valleys that the scripture talks about now are just tent cities all over. Yeah. 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 And so that was the long-term partnership. Sure. And we know that's going to continue for decades through our church. Yes. But then this summer, um, we, we hear about this explosion yeah. in Beirut. Could you share... You shared two specific stories yes. yep. that kind of summarize the ministry going on. As I said, that we were there when the explosion happened, means our partners were there. So when they saw that it happened, they immediately responded. And this time it was very unique. You know, our focus was Syrian refugees, mostly Muslims who are coming to Christ. But again, Christian community in Beirut also was devastated. So our partners actually reached out through those Christians, and it was very painful for them because... For, for the past ten, a decade or so, they have been giving to the Muslim neighbors and all those things. But this also opened up to receive the grace of God or the gifts. And at, I, uh, you know, our partner mentioned one of them, that there was a lady and, the, and, and she said, you know, pastor, for, for years I have been giving, but it is very humbling to receive this care package, this food package. And another a positive thing that we, we always hear is, is that our, our partners were told that you are here, now get me this, get this very clear, you are here not to take pictures and go away. Because that has been happening, that was happening. A lot of NGOs take pictures and they go away. But she said that you are here with us praying, you are, you are, you are here with us uh, crying and sharing the beauty. 
So you're not here to take pictures and go away, but you are here with us for long-term commitment. And that is the beauty of our partners there. Yeah, so God is showing up, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so Sam, um, as I just announced, we have this special giving project coming up in two weeks where people wanting to respond, uh, our partners here in Lebanon are going to be one of the four uh, receiving partners of that above and beyond giving as we continue. Uh, but how else can we as a church family be praying? I will say the greatest gift that you can give is the gift of prayer. Prayer leads us to giving. If we don't pray, we don't give. So I will challenge our, our, our congregation here and also online that could we commit to pray for our brothers and sisters there? Because when we say we are the body of Christ, when one person hurts, we also hurt. And then the Lord will open up. I mean, I, I firmly believe that our history shows over the last 100 years, 90 plus missionaries. And even now, as Kyle has shared, that we thank the Lord that we have not cut any of the support. And I firmly believe that by the way, this project will go beyond 40. I know yeah. that. And it will be because of our prayer and commitment and the abundance that God will give us, we give. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, Thank you. brother. And Sam, if I could actually have you come back up, brother, because Pastor Eric's going to lead us in prayer uh, for our whole church, but specifically over you and our partners in Lebanon, too. Will you, will you guys pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we praise you this morning for your goodness and for your steadfast love. We praise you because you are the creator and sustainer of all things. We praise you because you are the one who has powerfully worked in history and has powerfully worked in us in Christ. We thank you this morning for the work that you have done through <laughs> Dr. Naman and, and all these different partners in Lebanon to proclaim that message of salvation, to proclaim your gospel, to love and serve people's most basic needs, including their most basic spiritual need. We pray that you would continue to guide him, continue to guide our partners on the ground there. You would continue to use them, Lord, to bring your gospel in whatever ways, Lord, that you open up, whatever doors, whatever opportunities, for your glory and the good of your people, the good of these people who are made in your image that you love. We pray for all of our missionaries across the world. I'll back up. We pray for all of your missionaries across the world, Lord, that you would use them to grow your gospel, to bring many to faith in you. But gracious God, even thinking about us in this particular space right now, Lord, praising you for your salvation and for your gospel, Lord. We confess even now, Lord, that we are a sinful people. Our minds and our hearts, even this week, have wandered from your way of life. We come to you now, confessing our sins and asking you by the holy blood of your son Jesus to forgive us, to make us clean, to conquer our sin and give us your gifts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, would you give us your good gifts? Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for the gift of this church across all of these campuses. And we pray this day for our families, our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our jobs, our health, our ministries. We pray that you would bring a spirit of humility, unity, and love within this particular body of believers. 
And Lord, like Sergio prayed, we pray for our nation and our world. We lift up those that you have placed in authority. Would you give them great wisdom in these days of internal and external conflict? Help us as your church to be an alternative community of peace and love and truth and righteousness in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of an American election, in the middle of a turbulent year in our nation's history, in the world history. Father, we remind ourselves this morning that we have gathered this day, the Lord's day, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sung together, prayed together, rejoiced together in your work, and now we come to your word together. Would you open our eyes that we might see? Would you open our ears that we might hear, open up our hearts and our minds that we might understand your word and altogether be changed? Would you draw us into deeper relationship with you and with others by your spirit this morning? Would you change us as we submit to your word? In your son's name that we pray, amen. Good morning. How is TVC doing? No, you guys look so depressed. Good. How is TVC doing? There you go. Uh, now that you're all excited, can you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew chapter 25. Verses uh, four, uh, 14 to, uh, through 30. If you are here, could you please say, I'm here. All right, this is the reading of God's word. Again, this is Jesus speaking. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. Verse 17. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. Verse 21. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. Verse 23. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said. I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting when you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You 
So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed or seed. Well, then you should have put my money and deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I will have received it back with interest. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Allow me to pray. Lord, as we... um, as we're going to be exposed to the preaching of your word, as we're going to open up a scripture, trusting that the Holy Spirit uses your word to transform our lives, to point us to Jesus, to reform our mentality, to transform our affections, Lord, as we expose ourselves to the preaching of God's word, I pray, Lord, that you give us a mind to understand, a heart to receive, and a will to surrender. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, for the presence and the power and the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit to be in our midst. And we pray for all all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says, you may be seated. All right, so today we're uh, we're talking about the church as risk takers. That is the title for the sermon today. Um, if you are visiting for the first time and you don't know who I am, or if you're visiting online for the first time and you don't know who I am, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors at church, um, and it is my pleasure, uh, uh, it's always my pleasure to spend the morning with you guys being ministered by you and now allowing the Spirit to minister you through me. So this text we just read this morning is a, is a really interesting uh, text. Um, it talks about talents. And, and if you have been in the church for a while, most likely you have heard this, you have heard about this text before, or you read this text, or heard a sermon about this text before. What is interesting, though, is as I was studying for all of this, is when people think about what a talent is, usually people take one perspective of what that is. Either for some people it's just money, which it has to do with money, or for some other people it has to do just with talents or abilities. And what I want to argue um, after meditating and studying at this text is that talent a talent is actually all of that. It has to do with money. It has to do with abilities. It has to do with talents that the Lord has given you for a very specific purpose, for you to use that in the kingdom of God. So actually, as we're hearing this testimony, my mind is going 20,000 miles an hour because I didn't know that you were going to share some of that stuff. And I'm thinking, that's half of the sermon, right? We're talking about people that are using what the Lord has given them for the extension of the kingdom, for the glory of God, for the joy of God's people, and for the joy and salvation of non-believers. Now, today, if you have been with us for a while, you know that we have been doing this church, this church, this series called Invincible Church, in which basically what we have been doing is going, describing and exploring what the Bible has to say about the nature and the practices and the mission of the church. It's actually... To be completely honest, this is a series that I have enjoyed a lot. Not just because, uh, yeah, I, I have enjoyed a lot. Um, and, and part of the reason is because it's always a good reminder that the church remembers why is it that we exist. And that the church remembers why is it that we practice the things we practice. 
Why is it that we have the liturgies we have? Because every church has liturgies. Why is it that we do the things we do? Because everything we do as a church, hopefully, has a purpose and a biblical reason. So, for example, we started the series talking about this invincible church, giving the definition of what it means to be an invincible church. And basically, if you guys remember, this was like more than two months ago, um, you opened this series, right? Well, I don't know if this is what Eric said, but this is what I said. Um, Part of the reason why the church is indestructible, invincible, is because God is always present and God is always active. And God says that not even hell will be able to destroy the church. Not because we're awesome, but because he is present and he is active in his church. We talked about prayer, worship. We talked about why is it that we gather. We talked about why is it that the word of God, the proclamation of the word of God, the meditation of the word of God, the application of the word of God is so important. We talked about the mission of God. How is it that the church is actually the mission of God? One of the ways I see always this is that God is already doing something. God is already accomplishing something. That is the history of Christianity. That is the history of the world. Since God created the world, God has always been in mission. What we're doing as a church is we are joining the ride of what God is already doing. So when we think about the mission field, it's not us being creative and smart and going to different places. All we're doing is we're jumping in the wagon of what the Lord is already doing. That's why we know that the church will win at the end. Last week we talked about repentance. And today we talk about what it means for us to be a church that is willing to take risks by using our talents, our money, our abilities, our gifts, everything that the Lord has given us. Actually, if you pay attention to that, it's about being fruitful. What is it that the church needs to have in order for us to be fruitful? For me, risk takers, fruitful, faithful workers, uh, it's all the same to me. Is what is it, what kind of convictions does the church need to have in order for us to use the talents the way we're supposed to? So I have to give you a little bit of context here before I go to the points for today. Uh, it's important that you keep in mind that this is a Jesus, this is a teaching that Jesus has started all the way in Matthew chapter 24. And it's all about the second coming of Jesus. It's actually, uh, this section is known as the Mount, uh, uh, set of teachings that Jesus gave in Mount, uh, Mount of Olives in, in chapter 24, verse 1. It's starting in verse, chapter 24, verse 1. And it's all about the second coming of Jesus, when he's coming back uh, to return and make things, everything, uh, make everything right again, right? In, in time in which he's coming to fix everything that is broken, right? And when you read from chapter 24 all the way to where we're reading today, you see that there's a couple of things that are important for us to remember about the second coming of Jesus. First, he tells us that we are living between the times, right? So the time in which he inaugurated the kingdom when he came, and the time in which he's going to come, we are living in between. Some theologians call that the here, not yet time. He came, but it's yet to be accomplished. We live right in the middle, right? And he says a few interesting things about this season. He says, for example, um, that nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. Only God knows. What I mean by nobody knows is like none of us. So it doesn't matter if you hear a modern-day prophet saying, hey, tomorrow, 2020, 2021, 2022, this is what is going to happen. You can easily ignore all of that because nobody knows, right? 
The, the other thing that the, that the text tells us is that this coming, the second coming, is, it will be suddenly, boom, in the blink of an eye, when people don't expect it. Right? So uh, what is interesting, though, is that it tells us also that during this season, there are certain signs that we should pay attention to. Now, there's a whole debate between theologians what those signs really look, look like. And you could say this, and this is my argument, and from my uh, doctrinal position, this is what it is. We have been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. The reason why I say that is because Hebrew says that these are the last days. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, all the way to right now, and when he comes back, these are all seasons of the last days. I know that there's theological differences. I don't mean to be controversial, but I think I am. Um, but, but the idea is that, is, I, I, you know, I think that we, this is all part of what it means to be in the, in the last days. It also tells us that when Jesus comes back, it's final judgment, Right? And that both Christians and non-Christians will be judged. The Christians will be judged, let's say, for graduation purposes, glorification, right? In which Christians will spend eternity with God, enjoying his presence and working uh, with him and for him. But then it's also the judgment for unbelievers, which the Bible calls condemnation, which is spending eternity without God. I, I think I mentioned this here before sometime in the past, but... For me, a good definition of what hell is, is what uh, C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis would say something like this, that hell is the place where people finally got what they wanted, a life without God, which is an awful thing. So this, those are the kind of things I remember when I think about the second coming of Jesus. This is why we pray for people. This is why we evangelize. We don't want anyone to go there. Now, it is within this big old context that we just talked about that there are three parables Jesus uses to explain how we ought to live in the midst of this here, not yet time. It is within that context. So there are three very famous parables. The first one is the parable of the ten virgins. If you ever read that passage, it's talking about um, the church living as, uh, this is my translation, hopeful vigilance, meaning knowing that Jesus will come back and being ready for when he comes back because he's coming back um, as a bridegroom, uh, to kind of finalize the, way, the, way, uh, the wedding, if you will, and we must be ready for his return. Basically, it says, relax, but don't relax, relax as much. He is coming back. Then the third parable is the parable of the sheep and goats, which is a very famous parable because he's talking about as we're waiting for Jesus to come back, we ought to live lives of loving diligence. This is what I mean by that. Is that during this season, it's an opportunity for us to learn, uh, for learning how to love our neighbor, like for real. Actually, the whole passage is about us having a heart of compassion toward the uh, one in need, to the vulnerable, to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan, to the immigrant, to the one in prison. And what the, what the parable is going to tell you is that our, our heart to those kind of people is actually an evidence of our relationship with God. Jesus actually says in that passage is that it is impossible for you to claim that you know the Lord and not love these people. Very radical. And he's saying, well, this is what you're doing between times. 
the parable that we're talking about today was actually the second parable in that section. It's all about how we work as we wait. And I call that faithful work. And, and as you read before with me, you notice that this is not a time of passivity. This is not a time in which the church is chilling back, waiting for the Lord to come back. This is not a time in which the church is just uh, practicing inactivity. It's not a, it's a season in which just, you, you know, God is sovereign. He's going to take care of everything. I'm just going to relax. That's not what the passage is all about. Actually, what the passage tells you is that the church during this season, between the here and not yet, we are called to invest in the kingdom using the talents that the Lord has given us. He's calling us to take risks. So the question remains, how do we do that? And I think that the text is going to give you four convictions. It tells you that you need to have four convictions. So these are the four points, and don't worry. This is going to go along. Um, number one, you got to know the master. Number two, you got to understand the calling. Number three, you got to confront the heart. And number four, you got to hold on to the reward. I spent like four hours trying to come up with those four points. So you better remember. <laughs> know the master, understand the calling, confront the heart, and hold on to the reward. Now, I, I promise I'm going to honor my time. Actually, this is the first time I'm looking at that clock, so I know what time I have to finish. Look at the first point. Know the master. First conviction. So here you have uh, three guys, right? And two guys that did a really good job and one guy that really struggled. What I want you to see, though, is that the word master is there on purpose. Actually, Obviously, in the text, the master is Jesus, and he's called two different names in the text. So, for example, in this section, verse 14 and 19 together, it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. That man is Jesus. The journey is that he's in heaven, you could say, waiting for the time that he's going to come back for the second coming, right? But notice that in verse 19, he's called a master. Now, what is interesting about the word master there is that it's a word curious, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it doesn't matter. In the original, that, that is the same word that we use for the word Lord. Jesus is being purposeful when he calls himself man, but even more purposeful when he calls himself master. Lord. See, whenever you look, when, when you look for the definition of that word in any biblical dictionary, it tells you that Lord means that he rules. It means that he's the ultimate authority and that he's the Lord over everything, even the, even the wrong things that happen. He's above everything, in control of everything. He's the ultimate authority. Everything submits to him. This is the reason why on verse 19, it says that he's going to return and settle account with them, meaning that we are going to be accountable to him because he is master. He is Lord. He is the ultimate authority. What is super interesting about that name, Master Lord, which is the one that I'm going to use now the most, is that that is the name that Jesus gives himself the most throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And whenever he calls himself Lord, it's not just to describe that he is the ultimate authority, but that he's my personal God and Savior. It's an amazing name. The most personal name Jesus uses is the name Lord. 
the ultimate authority, but he's the same God that is my personal Savior. So this is the application. To know God, to know Jesus, is to know him as both the ultimate authority, and we submit to him, and as my personal God and Savior at the same time. See, part of the reason why we struggle responding to what the Lord calls us to do is because we forget that this, per- because we divide these two things. He's either just my personal Savior and God, and he's just like my friend, or he's, all- he's only authority and I'm afraid of him. But what Jesus does is he brings these two concepts together. And he says, I am the ultimate authority. You submit to me. But I'm also so personal that I'm your God and your personal savior. Now, check this out. If there's a master, then everybody else is a servant. This is part of the reason why in verse 14 it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. You know, how many of you guys like the word servant? Raise your hand. Not one person. I don't like it either. Part of the reason why we don't like it is because there's a historical, you know, reason for that. Um, but I also think that there's a misunderstanding what the word servant means in the Bible. And I think that there's one more layer why we struggle with the word servant. is because um, as a culture... In our society, it is really, really hard to embrace that there's someone that is in authority. I want to argue that everyone in this room, including myself, at times we struggle with someone in authority. That's something that we inherited as as sinners, but it's also that we have embraced as a culture. We are part of the me world. I don't know if you ever heard this before, but I've heard heard it 20,000 times. You don't tell me what to do. I don't tell you what to do. That's an authority issue. I don't care what people say. Have you ever heard that one? That is not true, by the way. We all care about what people say. We just got to learn how to pick the right people. Actually, if I say that to my wife, I don't care what people say, I would not be be married today. I should care about what my wife says. I should care about what Rob as the senior pastor says. I should care about my my accountability friends say. So it's not about not caring what people say. It's about having the right people. But we live in a culture and in a time in which that is not popular. That message is, it's, uh, the, the, the challenge of authority and not what people care is, it's all over the place. So if you have a little one or you had a little one like five, seven years ago, Uh, or if you live in this world, you probably heard about this famous Christian spiritual, no, it wasn't Christian, spiritual movie called Frozen. You remember that one? Well, that was a song. I've used this example so many times because it's a perfect example of what it means to live in a world in which authority and opinions don't matter. Part of the song, part of what made that song, uh, that movie famous was that song they sang 20,000 times. And that my daughters sang a million times after that. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Right from the beginning, my daughter's singing that garbage. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No rights, 
No wrong, no rules for me. I am free. You know how crazy that is? That a little one is singing that at home. No rights, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. The irony of that song is that you're not free. You are bound to yourself. You're slave of yourself. That's why we need to rescue the concept of servanthood. And we need to understand why is it the Bible calls us servants. I want to argue that part of the reason why maybe some of us might struggle acknowledging God's authority and as my personal Savior and God is because we really have a hard time understanding that we are just servants. What is beautiful is that the Bible never uses the word servants in a negative way. You don't see anybody in the Bible. Look at verse 21. He says, his master replied at the end when everything had happened. I'll get back to that later on. He says, well, well done, good and faithful servants. He didn't say good and faithful co-workers, which is part of, is, is similar, right? He says, good and uh, faithful uh, even workers. Good and faithful were warriors of the kingdom. Good and faithful, just faithful missionary. He doesn't use any of those words. Good and faithful servants. And the guys are like, how dare you? No, 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 no. Well, actually, the response is like, thank you, Lord. There's no offense here. See, this is the argument. This is the argument I'm making. If we really know the Lord, if we really know Jesus, we have no issues with him being the ultimate authority because he's master. We have no issues with seeing him as God and Savior, but we also have no issues trusting him and that we are his servants. Did you know that obedience? It's always a trust issue. And disobedience is always a trust issue. So I could argue that the reason why the two guys that did well was because they trusted Jesus. And the two guys that did wrong, and the guy that did wrong was because he did not trust him. Now, this is where it gets complicated, church. And I want you to see that all three guys call the master, master. That's the difference between religion and actually knowing God. All three guys call them master. Actually, look at verse 24. This is the third guy. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Look at how, what he calls the person. Master, he said. I knew that you are hard, that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And verse 26, his master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. You know, for years I read that text and it didn't make sense to me. Because this guy is saying to the master, remember in the, in the metaphor here is Jesus. He says that Jesus is hard. He says that Jesus is a freeloader. He's saying that Jesus is a thief. That's what he told them, right? What is interesting is that the master does not correct them. But we know that that's not the character of our Savior. 
what Jesus says with this parable is actually he uses, he's being sarcastic, and he says something like, well, if you say that I am that, how come you didn't put my money to work so I less, at least put it in the bank so at least I could get some interest? So this is what Jesus was teaching. That even, that even if you claim to know God, even if you claim to know Jesus, even if you call him Master, Lord, Savior, God, if you are not willing to respond to what he's calling you to respond, you're just wicked and lazy. Not you, the guy in the story. You see what I mean? It is possible. It is possible to do all the religious things. It is possible to come to church. It is possible to serve. It is possible to read the Bible. It is possible to worship. It is possible to do everything. It is possible to say to Jesus, you are my master. You are my Lord. And it's also possible to say all of that as a religious experience, but you don't know God here. So which one are you? Like, nobody can answer that question, I would say, but you. In order for us to start responding to God's call to our life, we must know him. Point number one. Point number two, you also need to understand the calling. No, once again, we have three guys, two guys that did really well, one guy that did really bad. But look at the attitude. Look at what we can learn from the first two guys. Verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, pay attention to the word called, and entrusted his wealth to them. It's amazing here because the word called means that it was the master's initiative, that it wasn't something that the guys were looking for, that it wasn't that they were applying and uh, fulfilling an application to see if the master will hire them. It was the master's motivation. It was the master's idea. It was the master's desire to call these people in to participate in what he wanted for them. All grace. I want you to see any talent you have as an evidence of God's grace. Not as something that you just have. But it's an evidence of God's grace. Now the word entrusted, very important word. Because it literally means this. Give authority over something. Who's, who was the owner of the wealth? The master. Who called them in? The master. And he gives them authority over what belongs to him. Stewardship. He says, I want to give you what is mine. And I give you authority to use it. Put it to work. And the guys responded because they knew that it was grace. And they also knew that it was a privilege. I've learned one thing in my time as a pastor, that the people that are willing to risk it all and the people that are willing to put their talents to work and the people that are generous with their money and is generous with everything else is the people that get those two things. 
Everything we are and everything we have is an evidence of grace. And whatever the Lord is calling us to do is always a privilege, not an obligation. That's why they responded that way. Gratitude. Now, this is the thing when you pay attention to that. Is that not only, this is crazy when I was thinking about this one. So not only God calls you and he gives its grace, and not only God is entrusting you because whatever you have belongs to him, and not only God is giving you this privilege to respond to what he's calling you to do, but this is the most crazy thing when I was thinking about this passage is that whatever he's calling you to do and whatever he gave you to use, he gave it to you, he gave it to you because, I, because he already gave you what is needed for you to accomplish the task. You know where I get that from? Verse 15. Look what it says. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. The word ability there is the word dynamis, which means the word power. You know what that means? That if you have an ability and you have a talent and you have a gift or whatever the Lord has given you, he also gave you the power to be able to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Which then makes me believe that part of the reason why many, many Christians, none of you guys, but many, many Christians are so passive is because they don't understand that it's a gift, that it is grace, that it is privilege, that, he, that, that with the talent there is power. No wonder people take risks. There's nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. The, don't think about missionaries giving their lives in someplace else for a second. Think about what we're doing today. There's nothing to lose. The, 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 the one thing that gives me confidence when I'm teaching God's word is that I have nothing to lose, really. In God's mercy, even if I say something really stupid, God would use it somehow. Grace, calling, privilege, power. Whatever you have, the Lord gave you. Whatever he's calling you to do, do it. Because if he called you to do that, he gave you the power to do it. So look at what the guys do. Look at the first guy. So verse 20, and I'm, we're not going to read this. I'm just going to show it to you. Look at verse 20. God gave him five bags, and he multiplied it, and he made five more. Look at verse 21. The, the, he, and then at the end, the, uh, the master says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Now look at the second guy, verse 22. He gave him two bags, and then he did two more, right? And then he gets the same response from the master. Well done, good and faithful servants. The reason why we're not reading it, but I just want to do the highlighted part, is because I wanted you to see that this part, so and so and so important. Listen, at the end of the day, it was not about the quantity of what they did, or what they had, or what they accomplished. They got the same praise from the master. One was five, double it. One was two, double it. But they got the same praise and the same reward from the master. Why? Because at the end of the day, God is not impressed by your great accomplishments. 
You know what brings joy to God's heart? Faithfulness. It's to be faithful. Be a faithful worker. I think that that needs to be reminded in the church today. Once again, we're part of this time and culture in which people are obsessed with numbers and accomplishments. We got this twisted idea of greatness. We got all this pressure left and right saying, do more, accomplish more, have more. It doesn't matter what you sacrifice. So I'm going to say something that I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to lose every single one of you. How many of you guys watched the documentary for the Bulls, The Last Dance? All right. Raise it, yeah? Halfway? Okay. Great story. You know, so, you know, I've lived in Chicago for 27 years or so. So I'm a Bulls fan all over. And I was during that time when that happened in the documentary. The story how they won seven championships, right? Um, what is interesting, though, is that everyone is worshiping Michael Jordan. That's how I know that I'm going to lose all of you, right? Is everyone is worshiping Michael Jordan. But when you watch the documentary, you see that this guy says it over and over again. All it matters is to win. So he will sacrifice people and everything to win. You know why? Because all the only thing that matters was the championship. That's the ring. And as much as I respect Michael Jordan because of the abilities and talents that the Lord gave him, I do not respect how he treated people and what he was willing to sacrifice in order to win. Interesting that throughout the documentary, you see him justifying that time and time again. It's super interesting. Every time someone would claim that was better than him, he would get better. He would get better. He said, oh, now he's on. And he will pray, he will play like crazy, crazy good. But it was all about winning. The Lord is not impressed with our winning. He's not going to ask you how much you make, what do you have, how many people in your organization, how many people come to your church. He's impressed by faithfulness. That we are faithful. The struggle in our culture is that our success is what defines us. We are defined by numbers. We are defined by accomplishments. We are defined by titles. But not in the kingdom of God. We do what we do because we want to be faithful. I want to argue that the more faithful you are, the more fruitful you're going to be. There's nothing I respect more than a husband and a wife that through difficult times, they stay the course, faithful. There's nothing that I admire more than a pastor that continues to pastor even if the church doesn't grow, faithful. There's nothing I admire more in a friendship and when people stick together even in the midst of problems, faithful. There's nothing I admire more than a parent that is sticking to his kids even when they walk away. Faithful. This is what it is. In order for us to uh, contribute to what the Lord is doing and use our talents, we must know God. 
We must know him as the ultimate authority. We must know him as a personal uh, and Lord and Savior. We must also know that everything that he calls us to do is because of grace. We must also know that everything is a privilege. We must also know that in this calling, he's giving us what we need in order for us to accomplish the task. And the more we embrace all of that, the more faithful we are going to be. At the end of the day, the only audience that matters is one audience, God alone, that at the end of your days and at the end of my days, when he comes back, the only thing I want to hear is good and faithful servant. Do you see yourself like that? This is not, age doesn't have anything to do with this. Talents and abilities doesn't have anything to do with this. It's whatever, whatever you have, the Lord gave you that. Put it to work. I could use this as a commercial. And I'm going to use it as a commercial. Everything that a church needs, there's more than one person here that can do it. Sunday school, youth, welcoming, ushering, small groups. Whatever the church needs, it's already here. That's a good commercial. You're welcome. <laughs> you need to know God? Oh, actually, no, no, before we have time? Yeah. There's, there's something that, that the master says to the third guy that I find, to a certain degree, offensive a little bit. So he's looking at the third guy in verse 30, right? And he says that he is a worthless servant. I don't know if Jesus calls you like that. I'm not sure that that's a compliment. And even if it wasn't Jesus, like someone calls me, man, you're so worthless, I think I'll be upset. So when I was looking at the definition of the word worthless in my Bible dictionary, it says that that word can be translated in different ways, actually. It could be translated as useless, which is still offensive. Uh, unprofitable, similar to useless. Unproductive. Unserviceable, brand new word for me. Uh, but there's one more definition that really caught my attention, and it's the definition of unfit for work. Now, this is the reason why. So picture yourself going to work. Actually, the Bible says that we are in the midst of this spiritual war. This is not a ride in the park, right? Everything we do as Christians, this is part of this spiritual war, right? There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. And you, if you're a Christian, happen to be in between those two. What is interesting is that when you go to war, you got to make sure that the person that is fighting with you, you can trust. Can you imagine what it means to go into war? And then you tell the guy behind you, hey, can you watch my back? And you can trust him? I think that that's kind of the idea here. I think that Jesus is saying to people that look at him only in a religious way, but they're not willing to use their talents and risk things for the kingdom of God. He's saying, listen, you cannot be trusted. You, you cannot be trusted. You don't trust me, says God. I can trust you. You got to know your God, and you got to know your calling. Number three, you got to know your heart. 
I think that we got to confront our heart with the reality of what we struggle here and uh, struggle with. And what you can see here is from the third guy, we can see what was the struggle in his heart. Verse 25. Number one, he was afraid. Number two, he, all, all he wanted was safety. So, so I was afraid and went out and hid your gold. And number three, he was, uh, not only he was wicked, but he was lazy. And that has to do with convenience. I want to argue that the three enemies of faithfulness are fear, self-preservation, and inconvenience. And this is something that the church in this part of the world really needs to deal with. So fear is a big, big issue. Do you know why? Because fear is always a distortion of reality. Actually, during this season, one of the most clear things that people struggle with is fear. Now, there's a, there's a natural part of that, which makes sense. But there's one part that is simply illogical, which is what fear does. It makes you fear things that are not even here yet. It's like the, what if? That's an illogical fear, you know? Because nothing is happening yet. What if in 20 years I'm going to lose my hair? What if later on I get married and this person walks away from me? What if I gain weight or lose weight? What if I get sick? What if? What if? That's the most illogical fear there is. Because those things are not here yet. This is part of the reason why Jesus' number one commandment, Jesus, is do not fear. Now, the self-preservation thing, I actually think, attacks the American culture. This is not about surviving. This is not about just pretending and protecting myself and protecting my... No, this is about the kingdom of God. You guys remember the movie Titanic? Uh, these are all illustrations, all of them. But do um, you guys remember that romantic scene in which the girl is hanging out to the piece of wood and then Jack is looking up? <laughs> I used this in Iglesia before. So uh, holding on and then he's looking up and she's like, Jack, Jack. You guys remember that? All right. Every time I see that scene, I'm thinking... That girl could move to the side so he could get on the board as well. But that doesn't happen. Now you can say, oh, that's all romantic. There's another scene in that actually when you can see the human heart, self-preservation, survival. People are getting those little boats. And people don't care if women and children go first. There's a scene in which they, the, one of the main characters gets in the boat and leads people out. And she's just saving himself. Christianity is not about you saving yourself. It has never been. Because we have a savior that did not save himself. Don't you think that we need to learn that today? That's why the first century church were so unique. They sacrificed it all for people who were sick. See, we got to check our heart with our fear. We have to check our heart with a self-preservation. And we have to check our heart for convenience. You know that at the end of the day, this last guy, when Jesus calls him lazy... Is because really, it was inconvenient to him to sacrifice anything. 
He played it safe. He played it safe. Oh, how much I pray that the Lord gives us a heart that is willing to risk and give and live by convictions. You got to know your God. You got to know your calling. You got to know your heart. And lastly, you got to hold on to your reward. Now, this is going to be super fast, so bear with me. There are three rewards mentioned here. And every single one of those rewards, we already have in Jesus Christ if you are a Christian. Reward number one, we get the praise of God. So the master says here, well done, a good and faithful servant. How about if I tell you, pay attention, church. How about if I tell you that if you are a Christian, if you already submitted your life to Jesus, if you surrender your life already and you trust in what Jesus already did for you at the cross, you already have the praise of God. You know why I say that? Because when you surrender your life to Jesus, you are automatically in Jesus. So when the Father looks at you, he looks at you through the Father, through Jesus. You guys remember when Jesus being baptized in Matthew chapter 3? It says one of the things that the Father says is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That means that if you are a Christian and you have placed your faith in Jesus, when God the Father looks at you, he delights in you. You know why I want to serve him. You know why you should want to serve him. It's because he already delights in you. When I was writing this, I was thinking about one of my little ones at home. Well, they're not little anymore. They're teenagers, but they're going to be little forever. Uh, so they're doing something. I remember my oldest one, when she was doing something, and she would always say the same things. Mira, papi. Mira, papi. All the time. Just look at me. Look at Look at papi. Look at, look at. And he was almost not seeking for an approval. But for me to say, that's good, Camila. Even though what she did was awful. <laughs> but she didn't need my approval. She was already approved. That's reward number one. Reward number two. It says that the master wouldn't trust them with more. His master replied, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Now, watch here. Many people, there's a, de a debate on this one. Some people think that this is talking about what God is going to give us more today. Some people think that it's about God giving us more after the second coming. Check this out. It doesn't matter. If the Lord gives me more to do today, it's for his glory and the joy of his people. And if he gives me more later on, it's for his glory and the joy of his people. That's the reward I get to be used by God. Reward number three. You get to experience the joy of the Lord. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share with your master's happiness. Once again, this is one of those that has two different definitions. Because some people say that this is what he's saying is that God would add joy to your life. Some other people say that this is you get to experience the joy of God. It doesn't matter. This is what it is. There is this thing called the joy of salvation. 
Knowing that you, because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, because he took the place, because he risked it all, because he went to the cross, because he absorbed the pain and took the penalty we all deserve, because Jesus did all of that. We have been justified, declared righteous. We have been sanctified, separated for God. We have been adopted. God loves us as a father. We have been redeemed, rescued from sin and the power of sin. You got all these things in Jesus Christ. When you have that, when you have that, that is the joy of salvation. The reason why we use our talents is because we are people of joy. We know we need nothing else. There's nothing else that could give you that joy. Compared to that joy, there's nothing else. So when you have this gospel-centered conviction of the rewards that we already have in Jesus Christ, that pushes you forward so you live the life that you're supposed to live. See, the God that did that is the God that you ought to know. See, the God that did that is the one that called you. See, the God that did that is the one that is going to be patient with you as, you as you deal with your heart and your struggle and your sin. See, the God that did that is the one that guarantees everything that is, going, everything that is beautiful and perfect for the future. That's how we respond. Now, we forget all the time. And that's why we have to participate in communion. It's interesting that in First uh, Corinthians, we're, we're not going to put this one on the screen, but in First Corinthians, it says that when we participate in communion, we, we, it says whenever we eat and we drink of this cup, communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is what happens when we participate in communion. We remember that the best reward is yet to come. Actually, we remember that the blessings that we already have in Jesus Christ here will be magnified when he comes back. You know what it means to have joy here? We have no idea the kind of joy we're going to have over there. You know what it means to feel fulfilled? We have no idea what is yet to come. And this is part of the reason why we participate in communion. So this is what I want you to do. If you grab your cup, um, hold it in your hands. If you, uh, there's one thing that the Bible calls us to do uh, before we participate in communion. The Bible calls us to examine our hearts before we even participate in communion. So I want to give you just a few seconds. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, and I want you to ask him, ask this. Lord, do I know you the way I say I know you? Lord, am I responding to your calling the way I'm supposed to respond to your calling? Lord, am I dealing with my heart? Am I allowing my fears of self-preservation or convenience to dictate how I live my life? Lord, do I value and appreciate your rewards? So stay there for a few seconds. And then we will participate together. All right, so let me remind you that communion is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus, you could do two things. One, surrender your life to him and participate. Or two, wait until you're ready 
Wait until you're ready. So could you please take the first layer off, the first uh, little paper up? So Eric told me before I came up here, peel the thing off before you go up. Don't need to, brother. Look at here. <laughs> Let me read to you what the Bible says about communion. Jesus said on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. I'll peel the second layer there. And the Bible says that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me, you may participate. Lord, we thank you that just as these elements enter into our body, the good news of the gospel and the good news of what the gospel accomplished needs to enter into our soul. I pray, Lord, that as we respond in adoration to you, you make this reality even more real. Not only that we know it, but that we experience it. That we may get to experience our God, Lord, Master, and Savior. That we get to experience the privilege, the grace, and the blessing of having talents that can be used for the purpose of the kingdom. That we may experience, Lord, the reality that we are still sinful people, but that have been forgiven and accepted in Jesus Christ. And that we may experience the promises of what is yet to come. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. In churches.